Genesis 19. Hear the word of the Lord. Now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. Then Lot saw them. He rose to meet them, and he bowed himself with his face toward the ground. And he said, Here now, my lords, please turn into your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise early and go on your way. And they said, No, but we will spend the night in the open square. But he insisted strongly, so they turned into him and entered his house. Then he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. Now before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both old and young, all the people from every quarter surrounded the house. And they called to Lot and said to him, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them carnally. So Lot went out to them through the doorway, shut the door behind him, and said, Please, my brethren, do not do so wickedly. See now, I have two daughters who have not known a man. Please let me bring them out to you, and you may do to them as you wish. Only do nothing to these men, since this is the reason that they have come under the shadow of my roof. And they said, Stand back. Then they said, This one came in to stay here, and he keeps acting as a judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. So they pressed hard against the man Lot and came near to break down the door. But the men reached out their hands and pulled Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck the men who were at the doorway of the house with blindness, both small and great, so that they became weary trying to find the door. Then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here, son-in-law, your sons, your daughters, and whomever you have in the city? Take them out of this place, for we will destroy this place, because the outcry against them has grown great before the face of the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law, who had married his daughters, and said, Get up, get out of this place, for the Lord will destroy this city. But to his sons-in-law, he seemed to be joking. When the morning dawned, the angels urged Lot to hurry, saying, Arise, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be consumed in the punishment of the city. And while he lingered, the men took hold of his hand and his wife's hand and the hands of his two daughters, and the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. So it came to pass, when they had brought them outside, that he said, Escape for your life. Do not look behind you, nor stay anywhere in the plain. Escape to the mountains, lest you be destroyed. Then Lot said to them, Please know, my lords. Indeed, now your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have increased your mercy, which you have shown me by saving my life. But I cannot escape to the mountains, lest some evil overtake me and I die. See now, this city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Please let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my soul shall live. And he said to him, See, I have favored you concerning this thing also, in that I will not overthrow this city for which you have spoken. Hurry, escape there, for I cannot do anything until you arrive there. Therefore the name of the city was called Zoar. The sun had risen upon the earth when Lot entered Zoar. Then the Lord rained brimstone and fire on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. So he overthrew those cities, all the plains, all the inhabitants of the cities, and what grew on the ground. But his wife looked back behind him, and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. Then he looked toward Sodom and Gomorrah, and toward all the land of the plain. And he saw, and behold, the smoke of the land, which went up like the smoke of a furnace. And it came to pass, when God destroyed the cities of the plain, that God remembered Abraham. And sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had dwelt. 
Then Lot went up out of Zoar and dwelt in the mountains, and his two daughters were with him, for he was afraid to dwell in Zoar. And he and his two daughters dwelt in a cave. Now the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is no man on the earth to come into us, as is the custom of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, that we may preserve the lineage of our father. So they made their father drink wine that night. The firstborn went in and lay with her father, and he did not know when she lay down or when she rose. And it happened on the next day that the firstborn said to the younger, Indeed, I lay with my father last night. Let us make him drink wine tonight also, and you go in and lie with him, that we may preserve the lineage of our father. Then they made their father drink wine that night also, and the younger arose and lay with him, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus both the daughters of Lot were with child by their father. The firstborn bore a son, called his name Moab, and he is the father of the Moabites to this day. And the younger, she also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the people of Ammon to this day. Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. You may be seated. Sodom and Gomorrah. Those names live in infamy. For over 4,000 years now, they have been synonymous with sin, depravity, and the judgment of God. And so we have to deal with the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah this morning. And then following the destruction of these cities, we have the account of Lot and his daughters. Genesis 19 is a dark chapter in the Bible. But there are hints and glimmers of the glory of the gospel to be found here. And so I've titled this message, Sodom, Gomorrah, and the Gospel. So what I want to do is similar to what we did last week. We'll look at each of these two sections, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah uh, in verses 1 through 29, and then the episode of Lot and his daughters in verses 30 through 38. And then at the end, we'll consider the gospel hints that are embedded in this story. And to do that, of course, we will uh, look at some other texts in the scripture that shed light on this passage. So following the visitation of Abraham in the previous chapter, the angels continued into the plain to visit the cities of the plain to investigate the outcry of their sin that had come to the Lord and to bring the judgment of God on these cities. The narrative follows two of the angels as they enter the city of Sodom where Lot lives. And there are obvious parallels and contrasts here uh, between chapter 19 and chapter 18, which we saw last week. You'll remember uh, Abraham was sitting in the door of his tent in chapter 18 uh, when the Lord appeared to him in the form of these three men. And seeing them, Abraham rose, ran to meet them, and bowed himself to the ground. By way of comparison, we now find Lot visited by two of the men. Reading in chapter 19, verse 1, it says, Now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face toward the ground. So just as Abraham sat in the door of his tent, Lot sits in the gate of the city. Similar postures, uh, but contrasting backgrounds. Abraham was in a more humble setting, the door of his tent in the quiet of the mountains. Lot is in the gate of a bustling and prosperous, though wicked, city. Abraham ran to meet them. Lot rises to meet them. 
Abraham bowed himself to the ground in a posture of humility and reverence. Lot bowed himself with his face toward the ground, toward the ground, but not to the ground. Uh, It's a gesture of respect uh, to someone of stature, but it doesn't have the same posture of humility uh, that Abraham showed. Like Abraham, Lot now shows hospitality, offering refreshment, uh, having their feet washed from their travels, and offering them a place to stay for the night. Now, interestingly, they turn down his offer at first, uh, saying that they will just sleep in the streets there in the city square. But he insists, and so they relent, and they agree to come and stay in his home. Lot then makes a feast for them and provides bread such as Abraham had done. But the detail is given to us here uh, that this was unleavened bread that Lot provides. And this is uh, the first instance, uh, the first mention of unleavened bread in the Scripture. Now, of course, uh, this will come to play a very important role in the history of Israel. Uh, Unleavened bread is significant. It represents, the the leaven represents sin and corruption. And so unleavened bread is free from that. And so Israel will celebrate the Passover with unleavened bread, which we, of course, know points forward to Christ. And, And as we celebrate communion this morning, even, we think of Christ's body, which is the bread broken for us. The unleavened bread represents that as Christ did not know sin or corruption. So unleavened bread is very important in the biblical narrative. I don't know why Lot made unleavened bread, but the fact that Scripture mentions it is significant. It seems to give us a hint that Lot was indeed, as the New Testament calls him, righteous Lot. That even though he is living in the midst of this wicked city, there's a hint here that Lot has kept himself at least unstained from the sins of the city in which he lives. But still, the the contrast between this introductory section and the parallel section in the previous chapter seemed to indicate that Lot didn't have the same spiritual discernment Abraham did. Abraham seemed to know right from the beginning that these men who were visiting him represented the presence of God coming to speak with him. Lot shows hospitality but without the same urgency, without the same humility. He doesn't seem to identify these men as coming from God. Not yet, anyway. Once the meal is complete, things now take a dark turn. Look with me at verses 4 and 5. Now before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both old and young, all the people from every quarter surrounded the house. And they called to Lot and said to him, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them carnally. Now here is the grave sin of Sodom to which it has lent its name. Homosexuality is a modern term for something that used to be known simply as sodomy because of this biblical record. The men of the city, all of them, old and young alike, gather as a mob. They surround Lot's house, demanding that he turn over these two visitors so that they can rape them. Now think this through with me for a moment. I don't know exactly how large this city was, but by all historical indications, it was a significantly sized and prosperous city. All the men of the city 
have gathered now, demanding that these two visitors be turned over to them so that they can rape them. What would the result of that have been, do you think? It would have been the death of those two men, had they been merely men. So this perverse sexual lust of these men of Sodom would have resulted in two murders as well. And they're not even being secretive about this. There's no shame. They're standing in the street, surrounding the house as a mob, crying aloud, demanding their victims be turned over to them. Now, at this point, you have to give Lot a a certain amount of credit for bravery because he goes out to talk to this violent and perverse mob in verses 6 and 7. So Lot went out to them through the doorway, shut the door behind him, and said, Please, my brethren, do not do so wickedly. That's a bold move. All the men of the city are gathered there wanting to have these two men, these two guests, turned over to them so that they can violently rape them, which would result in their death. Lot not only goes out to speak to this violent mob, but he condemns their behavior as wicked. But what comes next strikes us as incomprehensible on his part. He attempts to avert one evil by suggesting another. And the one he suggests is horrific to our ears in verse 8. See now, I have two daughters who have not known a man. Please let me bring them out to you, and you may do to them as you wish. Only do nothing to these men, since this is the reason they have come under the shadow of of my roof. Now, <clears throat> I agree with John Calvin on this count. Calvin says he should rather have endured a thousand deaths than have resorted to such a measure. <sighs> to turn his daughters over to these men uh, to be raped and killed uh, it boggles the mind. But in spite of this horrible suggestion of his, we do get a glimpse here of why Lot had insisted so strongly that the men stay the night with him. He knew what would happen to two strangers who spent the night in the open square on the streets of the city. He knew the culture of the city in which he lived. He had brought them into his home to protect them at some risk to his own family. Lot is not perfect by any means, but I think that we can see that he he was indeed vexed and troubled by the sin of the city in which he lived, as we read in 2 Peter this morning. We can also see from this that Lot has, has some godly influence, at least, in his own home. The fact that living in the midst of Sodom, in the midst of a city so corrupt and perverse sexually that Lot has managed to raise two daughters who are still virgins, is saying something. Not unlike attempting maybe to raise daughters in L.A. today. He has raised two daughters who in his home are still virgins. That's quite frankly astounding. But he doesn't have the influence in the city that he thought he had. Because notice the reaction of the mob in verse 9. And they said, stand back. Then they said, this one came in to stay here and he keeps acting as a judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. 
So they pressed hard against the man Lot and came near to break down the door. Now, Lot had been sitting in the gate of the city at the beginning of the chapter, which implies (coughs) or means that um, he seemed to think that he was some sort of civic leader or respected member of the upper class of the city's citizens. And and later in the biblical text, we find Boaz sitting in the gate of his city, uh, and he is a respected leader in the town, a respected businessman uh, there in the book of Ruth. But Lot, he's sitting there in the gate as if he is this respected businessman, but obviously does not have the respect of the men of Sodom. They view him as an outsider, not one of them. And they resent his presuming to judge them and to find their lifestyle wicked and unacceptable. Lot is sadly a picture of many believers in America today who desire uh, to have the respect of the elites in our culture. And so they compromise. Uh, They embrace evolution and try and square it with the scriptures or they compromise on sexual morals in an attempt to be seen favorably by the culture. The problem is that the world will not respect you for simply tolerating them or compromising on a point or two. It's all or nothing. You're fooling yourself if you think that you can be part of the crowd in the culture while still holding to any biblical standards of ethics and morality. When the wicked are described for us in Romans chapter 1, it says that they are those who, knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. The culture will only be pleased if you join them in their debauchery. If you keep yourself from joining in their wickedness, the culture will only hate and despise you because they know the truth in their hearts, we're told in Romans 1, but they have suppressed that truth in their unrighteousness and they do not want to be reminded of that truth. They don't want anything that will remind them that what they are doing is sinful that it is unacceptable, that there is an almighty God who will hold them accountable and that they will suffer his wrath for their sin. So that's what happens with Lot. He thinks that he has their respect, but he doesn't. He's compromised to some degree, but they, they still hate and despise him because he judges their lifestyle to be wicked. And so he finds himself hard-pressed by this mob of sexually perverse and violent men. So the two angels, again called men in verse 10, reach out and they pull Lot back into the house and close the door after him to keep out the mob. And then it, it says in verse 11, and they struck the men who were at the doorway of the house with blindness, both small and great, so that they became weary trying to find the door. Now, what's interesting to us about this is that the men continued to grope for the door after they had been struck blind. And we think how outrageous their sin was that that their sexual lust would drive them to continue to search for the door even after they've been struck blind. But the truth is, this is not so unusual as we might think it is. We see it daily in the lives of the reprobate. 
They suffer the consequences of sin in their lives, and they continue to grope after more and more sin, setting themselves in opposition to God and blindly following their lusts. We look at the rise of STDs in our population in the last few decades. In fact, some of them have risen by astounding numbers even in the last year. Some of sexually transmitted diseases rose by as much as 25% in 2021. Has this resulted in our culture seeking sexual purity and abstinence, recognizing the result of their sin and going, we need to change our lifestyle? No. What it's resulted in is the CDC telling us that this rise in STD simply proves, quote, a failure to provide access to quality health care to everyone who needs it. Yeah, that's the answer. Blindly groping for the door, demonstrating that they are enslaved by their sin. They're slaves to it. Even when they have suffered consequences, even when they've been struck blind, they continue to pursue their sin because they are enslaved by it. So the men tell Lot to gather his family and to prepare to flee the city because they are going to destroy it. Now at this point, Lot has finally been told just who his visitors are. They say in verse 13, we will destroy the city. The Lord has sent us to destroy it. Then Lot goes and tells his sons-in-law that the Lord is about to destroy the city. So Lot finally understands that his visitors are from the Lord, representing the presence of God, about to bring down the wrath of God on the city in judgment for its sins. And these couple of verses from verse 12 to verse 15 also relate to last week's text. Remember that Abraham had interceded multiple times for the city, asking and pleading with God, if you find this number of righteous people there, Please don't destroy the city. And and God continued to agree. And Abraham pursued this line of argument until he arrived at the number 10. And then he stopped. What was significant about the number 10? Well, not all commentators agree on this, but verse 12 mentions son-in-law, sons, and daughters. Verse 14 mentions sons-in-law, plural. Verse 15 mentions the two virgin daughters still living at home with Lot. So if we assume that there were sons plural, as mentioned in verse 12, then the total of Lot's family would add up to at least 10 people. Lot and his wife, sons, sons sons-in-laws, the daughters those sons-in-laws married, and the two virgin daughters still living at home. 10 people. So this could be why Abraham didn't pursue things further than that number, asking mercy if 10 righteous people could be found in the city. The trouble is, Lot's family are not all righteous. His sons-in-law didn't take him seriously. They thought that it was some great joke that he was playing on them. Lot can't get his family to take the threat of God's wrath seriously. This same sort of situation is portrayed for us at the beginning of the Pilgrim's Progress. The character Christian is unable to persuade his own wife and children to take the threat of God's wrath seriously. This is still the case today. Many in our culture, when they hear the message of the gospel, which must include the wrath of God from which we are saved, won't take it seriously. They dismiss it as a fairy tale, as superstition. 
Interestingly, these same people will inconsistently hold to all sorts of superstitions in their own lives. But they don't want to believe that there is an almighty God who will hold them accountable for their sins, who will judge and punish them. And so they laugh it off just as Lot's sons-in-law did. But now the morning has dawned. And the angels hurry Lot along, taking him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand and bringing them out of the city in verse 16. While he lingered, the men took hold of his hand, his wife's hand, and the hands of his two daughters, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. Now, why, Why did Lot linger? Was it an effort to convince more of his family to accompany him? Was it merely reluctance to leave their home and possessions behind. I suspect it was the latter. After setting them outside the city, the angel issues a dire warning in verse 17. So it came to pass when they had brought them outside that he said, Escape for your life. Do not look behind you nor stay anywhere in the plain. Escape to the mountains lest you be destroyed. But Lot is still reluctant to obey. So he pleads with them to let him simply go to this small city in the plain uh, if they would spare it for his sake. And so the angels respond. Uh, Then Lot says to them in verse 18, Please know, my lords, indeed now your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have increased your mercy, which you have shown me by saving my life. But I cannot escape to the mountains, lest some evil overtake me and I die. See now, this city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Please let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my soul shall live. Now, interestingly, in verse 19, Lot changes from plural as he addresses the men to the singular uh, when pleading his case. So he recognizes at this point that these men are of God. He knows God's judgment is about to fall on Sodom. He acknowledges that God has shown him mercy in bringing him out and sparing his life. But He still doesn't trust God to preserve his life uh, in the mountains. He's not ready to give up the comforts of his life of ease and luxury in the city. But the angels grant his request and they hurry him to the city of Zoar. Now, as soon as Lot is safe, the judgment comes. And and it's interesting that the events of Uh, What happened here at Lot's house in Sodom and the sin of the city of Sodom takes place at night and God's judgment comes with the dawning of day. Judgment comes in verse 23. The sun had risen upon the earth when Lot entered Zoar. Then the Lord rained brimstone and fire on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. So he overthrew those cities, all the plain, all the inhabitants of the cities, and what grew on the ground. It's a dramatic scene. Now, if you'll remember back to chapter 14, when Abraham had to go to battle to save Lot, remember there had been a a large battle in the valley, uh, and some kings had come and taken captives, and they took Lot. And so Abraham went uh, to rescue Lot after that happened. And we were, it made a point of telling us when that battle took place in chapter 14, it said, now the valley of Siddam was full of asphalt, asphalt pits. Now, this is the same substance that they used for mortar when they were building Babel. 
It's the same substance that Moses' mother will later use to waterproof his little ark made of reeds. It's likely tar. This valley sits very, very low, below sea level. Much organic matter had likely been deposited there during the Great Flood. The valley was very, very fertile because of that. It produced an abundance of crops. Remember when Abraham and Lot divided the land among them, Lot had looked at the valley and it told us in chapter 13 that it looked like the garden of the Lord. It was so lush. It was a very fertile place containing all that organic matter, made the soil very, very rich. But it also contained tar pits in the lowest places. Now, as God rains down fire on the cities of the plain, that tar would have ignited. It's even possible that the event triggered some small earthquake that could have released flammable gases trapped beneath the surface into the low, heavy atmosphere of the valley, which also ignited. You could call it heavenly napalm. Fire from heaven, tar pits, flammable gases, everything burned. The cities were reduced to ashes, the New Testament tells us. They're destroyed. The inhabitants are killed. The crops are incinerated. It's complete devastation. By the mercy of God, Lot is saved. But his wife looked back. The angels had warned them in verse 17, Do not look behind you lest you be destroyed. And then in verse 26, it says, but his wife looked back behind him and she became a pillar of salt. She didn't look back just to see the destruction that the Lord wrought. She looked back desiring the life that she was leaving behind. As John Bunyan said, this woman escaped one judgment for she fell not by the destruction of Sodom, yet she was destroyed by another. Jesus cautioned us in Luke, remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. She didn't want to lose her life in Sodom, a life of luxury and ease in this prosperous, fertile city. She ended up losing her life because she wanted to save it. Lot lost his life in Sodom. He lost everything that he had. It was all burned up and destroyed in the judgment of God, yet he saved his life. In this case, Lot seems to be a vivid picture of what Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians. Each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. Everything Lot had built was destroyed by fire from heaven, but his life was saved by the mercy of God. The narrative now changes perspective. It takes us now back to Abraham He has risen early in the morning and returned to the place where he stood and spoke with God the day before. And from that vantage point in the mountains, he now looks down on the valley and witnesses the judgment of God. And verse 29 proves to be a definitive answer 
to Abraham's rhetorical question of the previous chapter. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Verse 29, and it came to pass when God destroyed the cities of the plain that God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had dwelt. God did more than Abraham asked. Not finding 10 righteous people in the city, God removed the one righteous man that was there along with those who were still under his headship and destroyed all the wicked. The passage that we read this morning in 2 Peter asks, it says, for if God did not spare the angels who sinned, did not spare the ancient world in the flood and turned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemning them to destruction, making them an example for those who afterward would live ungodly and delivered righteous Lot who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. If the Lord did that, if he punished the wicked and yet brought Lot out of that and saved him, then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and how to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. Surely the judge of all the earth will do right His judgments are true and righteous altogether. Not one righteous person was destroyed with the wicked, which was more than Abraham had asked for or hoped. Now the last nine verses of the chapter now serve as a sort of postscript, giving us some insight into what happens to Lot and who his descendants are. Lot is only mentioned three more times in the entire Old Testament. And those mentions are just in reference to his descendants. So this is the end of the story of Lot. We're not told any more of his life after this event. We don't know how long Lot stayed in Zoar, but it doesn't appear to be long. He became fearful, either fearful of God's judgment on that city as it continued in the sins for which Sodom was judged, or perhaps fearful of the inhabitants of that city and what they might do to him. And so Lot takes his two daughters who are with him and he flees to the mountains as the angels had initially instructed him. He's now living in a cave in the mountains. He's lost everything. And so his two daughters talk and the oldest presents a problem as she sees it in verse 31. Now the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is no man on the earth to come into us, as is the custom of all the earth. Now she knew that there were still men on the earth. They had lived at least briefly in Zoar. They knew that their uncle Abraham was somewhere about in the mountains with his entire household. But her concern is that they have lost everything. They're poor. They're isolated. They, they have no opportunity for marriage. Their father has no dowry to give them if they were to get married. So her desire is to continue the family line. Uh, She's not driven by sexual lust as the men of Sodom were, but but she conceives a plan that is sinful at its core uh, in order to preserve the family line. So she says in verse 32, Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, that we may preserve the lineage of our father. And so this is what they do. And I find it 
somewhat interesting that having lost everything in the destruction of Sodom, being reduced to life in a cave, when they left Zoar, they must have brought some supplies with them, presumably whatever food stuff they could beg or barter for makes sense. And they brought some wine with them. It's not out of place in that culture. But they brought enough of it that they could get Lot good and drunk two nights in a row. They had lived in luxury in Sodom so that even when reduced to living in a cave, they thought they needed to have the luxury of having this wine. Just as Noah got drunk after the judgment of God in the flood, so Lot now gets drunk after the judgment of God on Sodom. Everything these two men had been destroyed by the wrath of God. Noah, the whole world had been destroyed. He had just his family left. Noah had, er, sorry, Lot had lost everything, including his wife. So you can understand the sorrow that he is experiencing. But then he sinfully drowns his sorrows in wine. And it's ironic that the men of Sodom were blinded. They were struck blind in their sinful lust. And now Lot is blinded by his sinful drunkenness, so much so that he's unaware of what his daughters are doing. There's a certain irony there. Lot offered his daughters to the men of Sodom to prevent their intended rape and murder of his guests, and now Lot himself defiles his own daughters in his sin. It's ironic. Both daughters become pregnant, and we are told that their sons father the Moabite and the Ammonite peoples. And that's the sad ending of the story of Lot's life. Now, in several of his letters, the Apostle Paul talks about the mystery of the gospel, the mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints To them, God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's Colossians 1. So what he means is that the inclusion of the Gentiles in the people of God by means of faith in Christ was a mystery that was not easily understood in the Old Testament but has been made plain in the New Testament. Now, we know it. We look back on the Old Testament. We see these promises to Abraham in Genesis that that in him all the families of the earth would be blessed. And we understand that's a reference to the good news of the gospel of salvation for all men by faith in Christ. But it was less clear to them. Augustine said that the New Testament was in the old concealed and that the old is in the new revealed. And I said at the beginning that there were hints and glimmers of the glory of the gospel found in this story. So let's explore those for a few moments. The first and most obvious hint of the gospel here is found in the salvation of Lot. He's saved by the mercy of God, snatched from the fires of judgment and delivered to safety. And this was done not because of anything in Lot himself, but for Abraham's sake. This pictures our own salvation, does it not? In which God saves us by his mercy and grace, delivering us from the fires of hell, not for anything in us deserving of his mercy, 
but because of the righteousness of Christ applied to us for our justification. So that's an obvious picture of salvation, but it goes deeper than that. The destruction of Sodom itself is iconic as a dramatic portrayal of God's judgment on the wicked. Interestingly, this event, there's, there's another event that occurs later in the history of the nation of Israel that, that parallels this event in uncanny ways. In Judges chapter 19, a Levite is traveling with his concubine. He stops for the night in Gibeah, the city of the tribe of Benjamin. It's one of the cities of Israel. He intends to stay the night in the city square. But a man who is not a native of the town but now lives there insists that he come and stay at his home. Does it sound familiar? The men of the city surround the house, beat on the door, and demand that the man turn the Levite over to him so that they can rape him. The man goes out to talk to the mob, just as Lot went out to talk to the mob. He begs them not to act so wickedly, using the exact same language that Lot used here, and instead offers his virgin daughter and the Levite's concubine. The men of the city don't want to accept this offer, just as the men of Sodom didn't accept Lot's offer. But the Levite's concubine is turned out to them, and they sexually abuse her all night long so that she dies. When news of this horrific event is spread throughout Israel, all the tribes gather together and they sack the city of Gibeah so that the scriptures tell us the whole city went up in smoke to heaven, just as Sodom and Gomorrah had. The entire tribe of Benjamin is wiped out with the exception of only 600 men. To quote professor of Old Testament Warren Gage, Gibeah of Israel in the days of the judges had become like Sodom. And so, because God is no respecter of persons, they had suffered the judgment of Sodom. When Romans 11, Paul speaks of the natural olive branches, by which he means the Jews, being pruned and cut off from the root because of their unbelief. But he specifically says that they are not cut off entirely. Here we see that happening in Gibeah because of their sodomite sin. But in Romans 11, Paul also speaks of the Gentiles being grafted into the root. The natural branches cut off, the wild olive branches, the Gentiles grafted in. And that's the mystery of the gospel. Christ in you, the hope of glory, in you, the Gentiles. This is hinted at in the story of Lot's descendants, the Moabites and the Ammonites. In the book of Ruth, we're told of another story from the time of the judges involving a Moabite widow, a descendant of Lot's oldest daughter. Her name is Ruth. Her mother-in-law, Naomi, conceives a plan for Ruth to preserve the family line and the name by seeking marriage to an older man. Similar story. Of course, this man is Boaz. When Boaz had finished his work for the day and drunk enough wine, though not a sinful amount, but enough wine to make his heart merry, she lays down at his feet. But unlike Lot's daughter, her ancestress, Ruth doesn't seek an unlawful union. She seeks covenant marriage. Boaz accepts the proposal. He fills her cloak with barley so that 
as she leaves, if you had seen her silhouette in the early morning dimness, she would have looked pregnant. They do get married. They have a son whom Naomi takes as a nurse so that the neighbor women say that it is as if a son had been born to Naomi. So the two women both receive a son, just as Lot's two daughters both receive a son. This son, though, is the grandson of King David and an ancestor of Christ. Those two accounts from the time of the judges that parallel the accounts of Sodom and Lot clearly anticipate the mystery of the gospel and the cutting off of the natural branches and the grafting in of the Gentiles. As a matter of fact, Lot's second daughter is part of this as well. One of her descendants is an Ammonite woman by the name of Nama. She became one of King Solomon's wives who bore his heir, King Rehoboam. So she is also in the line of Christ. Both of Lot's daughters are in the line of the Savior. The good news of salvation is to be found even in the story of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. The grace of the gospel was extended to Lot and his daughters and their descendants. The Lord, as Lot said, increased his mercy and saved them alive out of the destruction. And he did so in such a way as to point forward to Christ, to the saving of the Gentiles, the blessing of Abraham's seed being extended to all the families of the earth so that as many as would believe, regardless of their ethnicity, regardless of their genealogical connection to Abraham, might be saved by faith in Abraham's seed. The faith of Abraham, the faith of Lot, the faith of Ruth, the Moabitess, These are our ancestors in the faith. And if we trust in the promise of Christ as they did, then we are saved as they were by the mercy of God increased to us so that we are snatched out of the fire safely in his hand so that we might live for all eternity with him. Let's pray.